I'm Jenny Brocky. I'm the presenter of Insight on SBS Television, and it's my absolute pleasure to be involved in the final session here today. A panel discussion on tomorrow's meal, which will try and draw together some of the threads of the things we've heard throughout the day. Uh, we have a diverse panel, as you can imagine and will have seen today, with different points of view, chefs from around the world, a food activist from Zimbabwe, uh, and a food thinker from Australia. So let me introduce our panel to you again. Please welcome Rene Redzepi, founder of Madge. Kali Kwong from Billy Kwong. <laughs> Chido Guevara from the Future of Hope Foundation. <laughs> David Chang from Momofuku. Rebecca Huntley, social researcher. And of course, Massimo Batura. What a treat this is. Okay. Um, I want to pick up on, a, on something you said, David, earlier in the day. Uh, and it was, it was just such a great statement, and I wanted to know more immediately. You said, the future will be less delicious in order to be more sustainable. <laughs> and I just thought we might get a few different views on that around the panel. Why do you think that's the case? Uh, one example off the top of my head is I believe food's got to go vertical. And... Uh, I've said it before, I think uh, hydroponics grows great marijuana, but terrible vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it's true, it's, it's just like, while I can grow something that looks good, doesn't have that much flavor, and I know that a lot of these, uh, uh, these, these, these kinds of farmers are trying to realize, like, wait a second, we have to, we have to integrate soil, topsoil into this process somehow. And there's only so much good soil on the planet, too. So there's going to be a, you know, not a fight over natural resources. There's just only so much food that we can grow that's going to be delicious. So I think a lot of that uh, delicious factor is going to depend on the, the restaurants and people in this room to figure out ways to make it very delicious. I just think it's uh, foolish to always assume that the future is always going to be better and more delicious. I think there's a lot of serious challenges ahead of us. And uh, I was just trying to, you know, it was more like a note to myself, not to everyone else in this room. <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. So, Cheeto, do you agree? Um, speaking from a point of a farmer, I think it's very, very important at this time to actually get farmers to be excited about how delicious their food is as a way of inspiring them to do better. So I actually really think that we we sitting here have actually to find that way by working together, how we can make food more delicious actually to get people excited about doing it. I come from a place where young people are not so fond of being farmers because they just think whatever. But the moment they taste good food, then they want to know more. 
I'm fostering seven children. Eh? The first time they tasted something really, really good, and they have become so curious about growing the food and all of that, and I really think that deliciousness is something that has to stay. We have to find how to make it stay. Mm. Okay, what do you think? What do you think, Massimo? I think uh, I have an idea. Mm -hmm. uh, I have an idea that could be very interesting. Why? So Bob Dylan was saying, what is the secret of your success? Waking up in the morning, going to bed in the night, and do what I want to do. That is the key. That is the key. Choosing to do and to be a farm, a farmer. If we can build a bank, uh, you know, I'm thinking about Italy, you know, I think about Sicily and Calabria and uh, Puglia and like this. And we built a bank with dates and places that are abandoned. For example, there are places in Puglia with trees of olives left like that, because we have too much. In Sicily, fields full of oranges, there are like the most delicious oranges, abandoned like this, because they don't have uh, that thing. If we can have on one side the field spectrum, with the field that are like that, left like that, on the other side, another uh, group of names of people, they have this kind of approach that they decide they want to go back to earth, to the farm, to, to produce uh, you know, oranges, to make the best oranges uh, or the best olive oil or whatever. You know? We should get to put in touch the owner of this land with these people and let them cook and work with their land and create incredible products. That could be a very good step to, to project into the future. Okay. <laughs> Who else would like to comment on this? Rene, this, this question of sustainability, you know, and, how, and it's come up again and again today. I mean, how do you marry those things? How do you manage to create a future that is both sustainable and delicious? you know, and affordable for that matter. Mm -hmm. Oof. Um, that's a big question. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> uh, it, it's about education, isn't it? It's about taking yeah, small steps. I guess so. Um, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and lie and say that I have a full overview of what goes on with every single mechanism in the food system. Because I don't at but all. Do you agree with what David was saying? That he thinks that you know, to be more sustainable, it may well be I less actually, delicious. No, I don't agree on that, Dave. I'm sorry. Uh, he, he was supposed to buy me dinner later. I'm not so sure now. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think uh, that um, you know, I, I, we've met some people. We have some people at Matt that really know their stuff. That's been talking about how. We're all going to get food on our tables. And more and more of this research uh, sort of guides us towards small localized food systems. 
And the small localized food systems that I know of, they make better food than the big large-scale food corporations. So I was actually thinking it was the opposite of what you were saying, mm -hmm. but, uh, um, but you gave me something to think about. Um, I, I, I think inherently in any small-scale localized food system, there is better flavor for sure, because the link between uh, the food and the people eating it are so close by that they inspire each other and they make each other do better things. I believe in that. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and, and we, as chefs, that we believe in this kind of uh, ideas, we have to support these uh, small producers. Well, what, what, so, what about so, a world of just tilapia? Calabria. That's not delicious. Calabria. Yeah. Calabria is delicious. <laughs> Oh, do you want to discuss Calabria? It's like, it's like the best bergamotto in the world. You have to buy in Calabria. You have the Anduja, all the coast. It's all rocky coast. No, no, no. The no. We're thinking of two very different fish here. It's a fish. <laughs> what? You're talking about Calabria. I'm talking about Calabria region. Calabria. What are you talking about? Sorry. Tilapia, the man-made fish that's okay. made Tilapia. All right, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> She's a social researcher, yeah. so she knows. Yeah. I, I, like I say, can I get Gallery? I thought, I want what to does he know about Calabria? <laughs> <laughs> he what, was does, provocate, what does so. anybody know about Calabria, really? There's a lot of secrets there. Rebecca, I, I, what, what do you think about this? Look, I, I think, I actually agree with you. We need to... <laughs> So climate change, that's the one thing I didn't talk about in my talk, climate change poses an extraordinary challenge to everything we do, including the way we eat. I have a lot of faith in the ability of humans to adapt to changing circumstances. So if we find ourselves having to do more with less, we can do it. My concern is that Australia is so wealthy and abundant that we won't make the changes before we're forced to make them. All right, so I think that we can make all of the cow interesting and tasty, and we can eat all of it. Um, we just have to put time and energy and effort into it. I will also say that, that I think, given Australia has an extraordinary obesity problem, perhaps food should be a little less delicious than it is now. I don't know if you... How many Tim Tams can they put out with various <laughs> things in them? But I guess the other thing I would say, too, is that what we find tasty is something that we are conditioned to find tasty. I remember doing a, a very big study with uh, people teaching cooking in high schools. And one woman said to me um, that she, one of the teachers said, look, I, I got my students to make um, uh, a tomato sauce for pasta from scratch, and they all hated it. Because they'd always had, and even though it was like intrinsically tastier than what they'd been used to. It didn't taste like what they'd been used to. And she said, I had to make them eat it again and again and again and again and make them promise not to eat the other. And it was only after a while of eating one that they found the other. So what we do with our taste buds at a very young age shapes what we find is tasty. Carly, I'm interested in bringing you in on this because I know there's something on your menu you'd like people to eat a lot more. What oh, is it? Oh, my goodness. When I, when I think about um, tomorrow's meal, I mean all of the things I just presented to you, but also I would really love to uh, see more edible insects 
on the menu. Um, you know my fascination and passion for insects and why. It's part of my cultural heritage. I mean, we Chinese have been eating insects for thousands of years um, for the, you know, the cultural and historical reasons which I cited in my, in my talk. Um, also, you know, with the, glo you know, the global, the looming global crisis of food security, which is, which is a major issue, I find it fascinating that and important to, to offer insects because they are such an, a, an important alternative source of protein. Um, what you were saying before, Renee, about localised uh, food systems and so on, yes, I agree, but I guess the biggest challenge, isn't it, is how do we get the... How do we get sustainable produce, um, native ingredients and so on, out to the general public, the greater public? That's that is, right. that is such a great challenge. And people will eat the insects at your Noma in Sydney. Not all. Not all? Not all, really. Could Not you, all. I've been dying to ask you this question. When did you first put insects on the menu in your Noma in Copenhagen and why? What was the inspiration That was 2011. There? We had, uh, it was the first MAD. It was vegetation as a theme, and I had invited a series of speakers to talk about it. And uh, for instance, David Chang, he was there to talk about how to ferment the plant kingdom. Mm. Um, and he coined the term back then, um, it was... Microbial <laughs> Microbial, micro what? I don't even know. No. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but and besides that, we wanted to have somebody that spoke about that that strange world <laughs> in between the plant kingdom and the animal kingdom, which was the insect, but it all sort of belongs to each other. And of course, Alex Atala, we invited him to speak because he was serving the ants on his pineapple. And uh, because of that, we started researching. I was thinking, well, maybe we have in edible insects. And we actually found out that, yes, there's plenty of them, also ants that are delicious. So we started putting them on. And um, at first, it was the same thing as you have experienced. I mean, it was an outrage. You know, people mm -hmm. thought it was, I mean, there were many things that happened at the same time. We, we put them on because we really enjoyed them. We thought they were amazing. Uh, but people Has thought- Has that changed, though? That has changed, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, it doesn't And take, how long did it take to it change, and how do you years. think it changed? It took a couple of years for people at home, at Noma, to eat it. Now we have allergies that's like no celiac and no insects. And, you know, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's become a part of the, 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 yeah. the, 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 the talk. But it wasn't like that. I mean, at, at first on, it was really scoffed upon. And it made me feel uncomfortable at, at certain times because it was almost as if people were saying, you know, I understand that there are people in the world that eat that, but if they were as clever as us, they wouldn't eat that either. It's because they're needy, they do it. Cheeto, do you find this amusing, this, this whole <laughs> discussion? Well, I grew up with my grandmother and we used to eat insects and I, until now I still eat termites, I love them. <laughs> and um, of course, the most important thing is that we may not just ignorantly eat them. We have really to get in touch with what's happening now to be aware of how much of that we're eating and how much of um, uh, it remains in nature. We, as long as we eat in moderation, it's wonderful. I miss insects. You can give me all the things that you give me, but when they are in season, when termites are in season, I'm very excited, I want to eat them. We eat all sorts of uh, strange things as part of our culture. And maybe that's one of the things when talking about will food be more delicious or not. Uh, well, if we uh, to eat the same 50 ingredients that we eat all the time, of maybe course, that's maybe, an issue, yeah. but if we start expanding our vocabulary mm -hmm. a bit 
and being open and curious and maybe it doesn't need to be less delicious actually. Mm. Maybe you realize that they're more delicious than ever, you know? Mm. Because, uh, you know, sometimes when you get lost into the everyday life, you don't realize that maybe biting a buffalo mozzarella just made and the milk that is coming out <laughs> and you don't feel, you know, there is a, is a mozzarella just made and you feel the animal that is giving you that kind of milk <laughs> and uh, it's just, well, it's a mozzarella. And, <laughs> it's like, and, and it's like that. It's like, and you, if you try different things and you don't get lost into the everyday life and what you used to, maybe you can uh, appreciate more what you have. When I, was, um, sorry, when yeah. I was writing that book, It Tastes Better, which I mentioned before, and I, and I travelled extensively for about 16 months at different periods all around Australia uh, and spent time with 40 different farmers and, and, and wine producers and food producers. When I spent time with them and got to know them as people and learnt the story and the passion and, and the skill and the craft behind Rob Bauer's carrots, his carrots took on this whole new flavour for me. So I, I guess, you know, when we, when we know the knowledge and the story behind the ingredient, the humble potato or the carrot or whatever it is, that acts as like, it's kind of like a flavour enhancer. So that was a really interesting experience. I've got a lot of questions I'd like to ask you, but there have been some questions that have come through social media that, that I think are really interesting to put to you. One of them is from Lester Martinez, who says it's arguable that eating well, organically, sustainably, ethically is more expensive, and as a result, it's become a diet exclusive to people who can afford it. So lower socioeconomic groups get left behind. What do we need to do to make tomorrow's meal everyone's meal? I mean, it, this is something we've been talking about mad, at MAD recently, trying to understand that system that is, why is food that is proven to be not as good for you as food that's grown from good systems, much, 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 much cheaper than the one that really takes care of it in, in a way. And that system, I have no clue about how that came to be and how you actually break that system so it becomes reverse. That, um, that things that, that uh, should be good, better for you uh, gets the right subsidized uh, portion to become as affordable, but we are in a reality where it's the opposite, right? Mm. And, and, uh, and also in a situation where as soon as something becomes regarded as a kind of desirable food, it becomes mm. more expensive. So, you know, if something's organic, it becomes more expensive automatically, almost. But also if you put the soil and you push it with, uh, mm. uh, you know, chemic and stuff to get mm. more and more and more, at one point the soil starts screaming, help, help, because, uh, you know, it's like you extract everything and one point is getting, you know, uh, it, it doesn't give you anything more. Mm. If you just look at the past with a contemporary mind, you know, you can think about what they were doing in the past in a, in a contemporary way. That's why all these uh, uh, small producer locals, and uh, as Rene was saying before, you know, they're growing so much. And uh, that's why I think uh, the, um, the farmers and the fishermen that, and, the, and the artisans of the future, they're going to be, they have to be close with the chef of the future. And why the, the schools right now, we are pushing the schools to at one point to uh, decide 
who's going to be the farmers of the future and who's going to be the chef of the future. And if they grow together, mm. the chef, they can go in the kitchen with the hand dirty of earth and smells milk because uh, that's the point. They're going to use uh, the technique to respect the ingredients and not to respect their own ego. Mm. You know, that's the point. I, I, Dave Chang had an a, a essay in GQ where he said food will be much more expensive. And maybe it's also the consumer that just needs to actually yeah. acknowledge that food is maybe too cheap. Maybe we've ourselves built a system which we've gotten used to food being so incredibly cheap that uh, we can't stand the thought of that expensive organic hair, but maybe that's the true cost of, what, of that food stuff. Yeah. And maybe it's that, le uh, you know, a pair of shoes less a year or whatever. Uh, or having, having the good the quality chicken once every fortnight rather sure. than, you know, three times a week or the good quality piece of beef that's been produced sustainably once a fortnight instead of, you Rebecca? know, three times I, a I week. Mean, I mean, the question of is good food expensive or cheap is, a very complicated one, and it really depends on what community and what part of it's Australia, which is my expertise, you're talking about. So if you, are, uh, if you are living in remote Australia, it is cheaper to eat really crappy food. If you are living in a reasonably, if you're middle class and living in Sydney, uh, you should be paying money for food. You should not be wasting food, you should be spending time cooking, and you shouldn't think, and, and that means both men and women and children in the house. We can't make the return to the kitchen be premised on women working harder, because everybody will get angrier. And, and I think what I was trying to say in my talk, talking about the international students, is that there is no such thing as cheap food. Somebody is paying for it. You may not be paying for it. You might be spending $7 for a pad thai, but somebody else is paying for it. The restaurant owner in incredibly slim margins who also doesn't necessarily able to pay their workers and not even starting the farmers who grow it. So it's an, it's an incredibly complicated question, but I suppose one of the ways to make, to, to get us to value food and to get us away from this idea that it should be cheap is to spend some time growing it and spend some time cooking it. Not, all, not some of us, all of us. And it will give you an appreciation and you'll go, to David's restaurant and say, I will spend $20 on some soup that, I, that may, won't taste as delicious anywhere else, I'm sure, but could be $5 elsewhere, because I know what went into that. Mm. Chidra? Um. <laughs> so this is speaking from a point of being a Zimbabwean and a farmer, and in Zimbabwe, most of the times, one of the things that I notice when I go to the market I go with my produce, and the way I talk about my produce as a person who's producing it, and the way that all the other farmers are speaking about their produce is completely different. And one of the reasons that I've boiled that down to is the fact that actually the farmer is growing because they think, oh, let me just grow this, and hopefully I will sell it. And they get to the market. First of all, they don't know how to speak positively about their, farm, their, their produce. They get there and the market dictates, this costs that much and this is what it is. And every time they're faced with a crisis where they have produce, somebody dictates the price, they can't defend it, so they sell. And next season, it's the same story, and it becomes a trend that is unbreakable. And if you look, the people who actually produce food, they never actually get to experience what it tastes when, it, when it's cooked. 
And the difference that is between me and them is that I have tasted my mushrooms when they were nicely prepared, and I know exactly about when is the right time to harvest them, and I can uh, uh, play around with that. And I really think that the best way to bridge that gap where actually this good food is only for the selected few is to empower all the farmers. And I think one of the things that we have to start shifting, and this is a discussion that maybe the reason, the reason we are sitting here is to address that. Farmers need also to learn to cook. They need to test the food. They need Bravo. to know the end Bravo. result of Bravo. what they are growing. So that with that, they can go to the market and they say, if you say, like I did with my, my mushrooms, the guy said there says, these mushrooms are not the standard. They have to be 200 grams. And I say, no, they're not 200 grams, it's 140 grams. And they have to be 60 cents. I says, no, it's $1.20. No, I don't want them. And I said, okay, fine, I'm going to dry them. They did that with my vegetables. I said, okay, fine, I'm going to, to feed my chickens. But imagine if farmers know that if I can't sell it today fresh, I can process it, and then I can sell it later. That they don't have to jump around today and just hand over whatever their produce is. So we need to have more farmers, but we need to have a different way of empowering the farmers so they can become more effective. And actually, the one who's responsible for doing that is a person's like us sitting here, because we know we are having this conversation now, we have, we, know, we have different expertise amongst us, and we can actually do that. It's no use for me just being a farmer without knowing what the chef is doing. It's no use <coughs> a farmer being a farmer without even a, having this interaction that can help us to uplift each other. Mm -hmm. Another question. No, we, need, we need more chefs, they know about soil, and more farmers, they know, know about, about food. food. Mm. Yeah. Sure. Mm. Another um, audience question. Oh, sorry, Carly. No, just one more thing. I remember when um, I spoke to Mike and Gail for the first time um, about my new, you know, newfound direction, and uh, of course, all I wanted was fresh native produce, fresh leaves. And um, Mike and Gail back then were were just doing a lot of frozen product and value-added product because the, the native fruits, for example, as soon as they're picked from the tree, uh, Mike and Gail have taught me that they, um, they start to, um, uh, what's the word, not disintegrate, they start to waste away very quickly because they're so delicate. So mm. a lot of the native produce is snap frozen. And Peter Gilmore and I were having a conversation with Mike and Gail about our wish list, which was to have fresh plants. So it started that wonderful co-collaboration um, that we're talking about between, between the cooks and the farmers, sure. which is very important. We've got another question, audience question, from Sarah Meikle. She asks uh, a question about food-defining cultures. She says Chinese, Indian, Italian uh, cultures very much defined in part by their food and wonders about countries that don't have quite as clearly defined food cultures. Uh, Sarah says we don't really eat Australian or New Zealand. And she asks, if we do, what is it? Uh, so what is Australian cuisine? And she also wants to know how we ensure that food's given the same level of importance in Australia as the rest of our cultural offerings, uh, given that we haven't got that deep-rooted tradition. Now, that's arguable. I mean, indigenous food culture's been around for many, many thousands of years. But it's an interesting question just around what you think Australian food is. David, you were talking to me about that earlier. What do you think it is? Um, I mean, if it's not what 
the original inhabitants of this continent have eaten, I think, Australian food. It really is everything that's not, um, that has been introduced sort of from 1960s on. It's, it's to me, Chinese, it's, it's Thai, it's, I think Australian food's more Asian than anything else these days. But if you ask anyone else right now, no one's ever gonna say, yeah, yeah, Australian food's Asian. They'll think I'm crazy. There's a reason for that. Why is that? Because Australia's in denial that it's in Asia. If we want to define Australian food, Australian... You have to go to Melbourne, uh, <laughs> and knock at the door of Attica, uh, walk into Attica, eat Australian food uh, made by a New Zealand chef uh, that is the first one who cook Australian food. <laughs> well, you, you've come to say, look, I mean, I think Australian food, the, the very basic history of Australian food is the history of our inability to come to terms with the fact that we're an immigrant nation. There was a rich indigenous food culture that when the convicts and the settlers came here, ignored and then starved, and they thought, do you know what we're gonna do? We're gonna go to a really hot climate and eat the worst possible British food that we can. And we're gonna do it for a really, really long time. And we're gonna overcook our food and our vegetables and we're gonna make crazy things like hot puddings in the middle of the, of, of uh, the summer. And then migrants came to this country and went to the supermarket and went, holy fuck, I'm not gonna buy any of this shit. And then they <laughs> decided to grow the food that they wanted in their backyard. And then suddenly, because, uh, because the Anglos went overseas and thought, gee, these Italians really know how to cook, and gee, these Chinese really know how to cook, came back and started to eat that food. Mm -hmm. And even now, even we are, the, we are the most successful immigrant nation in the world, and we're still in denial, that we're part of Asia, we're still in denial about the extent to which migrants contribute a lot more than good takeaway to this country. And so we know what Australian cuisine is. It is a harmonious mixture of all the best people that have come to this country. It still ignores Indigenous, <laughs> still ignores indigenous food, but that's changing. I think... Uh... Australian food can be defined in a plate of spaghetti with some sashimi, a little bit of curry, <laughs> and sometimes spices. That's a very good Australian food. But it's also, but it's also Renee, what you served up at Noma. It's also, it's and you know the meal I that I had there. The, on, the meal I had there on Friday night was one of the most. Australian meals in a very different kind of way. Mm. Also, because we got drunk. To me, it's <laughs> Renee's mind. That is different. But, but why is that? You know, why is it that Renee is doing that, Kylie's doing that too, but we're not seeing more of that sort of food in Australia as well, using those, those beautiful, you know, um, greens that you talked about, Kylie, and using the things that you, that you used, Renee? Why are we not seeing more of that more broadly? Anyone got any theories about that? Is it availability? Is Does it... anybody want to answer that in the audience? <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I, I, I find it really interesting. I can only speak for myself. I mean, yeah. I make it my duty to um, use as many native ingredients as possible now, and I will always use them now for as long as I live. It, I feel like it's, an, it, it's a part of me. It's a part of my DNA. And when we talk about the subject, I guess, of... Uh, cooks, chefs and restaurateurs becoming role models or, 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 or spokespeople within the community and so on, which is something I take very seriously. It is also very important that I integrate native ingredients into my cooking um, in order to, to make that statement, which I mentioned in, in my talk. Um, why 
Others, why we don't have a lot of other people using it, I do not know. Yes, native ingredients are very expensive. Hopefully that will, with critical mass, um, change. But I, I uh, manipulate my business model, if you like, in a way to accommodate native ingredients as, as one of the key, key drivers in the business. Mm -hmm. um, David, because you I think it's so important. David, to say something then. Um, I don't know. I, I think that I can understand, I think, what's going on in Australia a little bit better because it's very similar to what happened to America. And I still struggle when you ask what American food is today. I mean, people always say it's fast food, big cars and stupid shit like that. But the reality is... Don't talk about Donald Trump. He's going to be your president. I, I, I think that even <laughs> no, Americans not. at large have a hard time embracing that it is a melting pot. And having spent a lot of time in this country, I, it's amazing to see just how diverse the population is here. Yet, you know, I don't know why, maybe you have the answer. It just, um, the words, it's not ineffable, but why are there not, why is it so difficult to describe the fact that it's, is it so fractured? Is it, you know, it's hardly Australian because there's no, nothing that encompasses everything. Does it matter? I think it does matter. Yeah. Because we were talking about community earlier today and I think community is something that provide solidarity. Mm. And this business is just too damn hard not to have someone watch your back. Yeah, Massimo, you, you've had to deal with the other end of this, of course, you know, pushing the boundaries on, on tradition. What do you think about Australia's, where Australia sits with food in relation to that? Is it a liberation not to have, you know, all that deeply rooted tradition that you then have to try and, you know? For a long time, I thought, uh, I thought uh, that uh, Tradition, there was something that was such a heavy weight to carry that I couldn't even move, you know? They want me crucified in main piazza <laughs> when I started to ask uh, the question, uh, but does tradition really respect the ingredients? No. Most of the, most of the time, the answer is no. And uh, think about, uh, I don't know, bolito misto, boiled meat. Why do I have to boil the meat into the water? Because 1,000 of years of history told me that. But that time, 1,000 years ago, we didn't think about uh, vitamin, protein, organolectic part, blah, blah, blah. Now, with the chef, contemporary chef, knows technique, knows uh, so many different things. And one day, you have to ask yourself a question. And uh, that question that day in 2004 was, well, why do we have boiled meat into the water? And uh, does really tradition respect the ingredients? So I start breaking everything and uh, try to uh, have doubt and not being sure to do the right things every time I walk into the kitchen. So if you have doubt, you, you just, uh, you just uh, project yourself in, uh, in, and you learn more and you, and you evolve. Because, uh, you know, uh, what I really learn is to renew the tradition, you have to look at the past in a critic way, not in a nostalgic way. If you look at the past in a nostalgic way, that my lasagna are better than yours, your lasagna is better than the other. But if you look at it in a critic way, you just uh, have uh, your palate, let's speak your palate, and your palate is gonna tell you where to go. And, uh, and, uh, and you can get the best from the past and bring into the future. Mm -hmm. This is the way to approach. I think it's important to know where the walls are and the barriers are to identify what a certain kind of food is, what a nation's food is, because what's always exciting for me, for instance, Koreatown in LA is so exciting right now because it's this amalgamation of not just Korean and Chinese and Vietnamese and Mexican, 
it's so rad because it's everything. So when I come to a country like Australia, I wanna see more of this, this thing where the walls are being torn down. I think before they can be torn down, we need to know where they are. And um, I don't know why I'm so dead set on figuring out what the hell it is, because to me that Australia could and should be, because of this immigrant population, be one of the greatest food cultures in the world. I mean, I love eating here, but I, 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 like, I was telling people today, like, oh, I'm gonna eat Chinese food, or I'm gonna eat Thai food. I get so tired of telling people, it's like, oh, it's gotta be this one type of cuisine. Um, and I think this is a place where it could be something a lot more than that. Mm. We're running out of time, unfortunately. I'm for sorry. sure, for sure, don't eat French food. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> The first time I arrived in Australia was uh, so, you know, was 89, something like that. I landed in Darwin, you know. I met some people, crazy people. They, they, they just, yeah, no, but this, this doesn't matter with food. This is a, it's just a personal story, you know. And, and so these people, they, were, they took me, okay, what do you, I was walking into the streets of uh, Darwin, there was no one, it was Sunday morning, and there was a track with uh, some uh, young guys, and uh, you know, they said, oh, come, what are you doing, I'm Italian, I just, uh, okay, come with us. They brought me, like, for three, four days, rafting, uh, swimming uh, around crocodiles, uh, doing jet ski in the middle of the ocean. I risk my life every day, you know. <laughs> then they said, I'm going to leave Darwin. I went to Cairns. I went to Cairns, there was no one restaurant. The only restaurant was there was called Creme de la Creme. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fuck Creme de la Creme. Okay, we have to wrap up. Um, unfortunately, unfo very unfortunately. Did they say um, something wrong? No, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't at all. We could keep going for a long time. Um, I just, because we do have to wrap up, I just want to go around each of you and ask you the key question, I guess, about this whole day, which is to have a better food future, for us all to have a better food future, what would you identify as the key things that need to be addressed? What do you think are the, the most important things to address? For me, it's definitely we need to re-educate our children, for sure. It's a whole new educational system in which food is a big part, as important as math and reading and writing. That's what I think. Mm. And Stephanie Alexander, of course, is addressing that with her kitchen garden very, mm -hmm. very strongly. In synthesis, is like culture. We need culture. If we have more culture, we can uh, educate more people. And uh, you know, schools and uh, things. That's why now we are working on, uh, on uh, for me, in my own personal place, maybe Dave is doing with the CIA, or, uh, or this. <laughs> no, 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 the Culinary Institute of America. <laughs> the greater CIA. <laughs> And, uh, oh. and this kind of uh, approach, I think, is very important. And uh, I think more than high school, now we need university, like uh, Polenzo, like uh, this, that uh, to, to create uh, uh, new wheels of Parmigiano with a big smile or a culturate <laughs> tomato. 
Mm. I think this is going to be... And a role for government in that? I mean, because that's interesting. That, that yeah. inv necessarily involves government getting involved. Uh, if you, you know, find you know, the right people engaged. to have a dialogue, yes. If you find the right people, you can do it. Mm -hmm. You two have been hatching a plan <laughs> out the back, having not met before. So it's, it's one of the one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest honours that has come out of today. Thank you, Renee. Again, is meeting this amazingly incredible, inspiring young person. We've been exchanging. We've been exchanging uh, insect recipes out the back. Absolutely amazing, and we'd so love what to. So, what are you? What are you? In terms together. of future, what are you two going to do? What are we what? going to do? What are we going to do? My new they sister. want to collaborate, so I think they're starting Chido, to talk. Chido met me out the back and she said, this is my card, let's do something together. <laughs> so it's like, what are we going to do together? I think the most important thing is that with this diverse group, that we take these kinds of meetings here a bit further. We can't, people like us cannot just sit, sit and have a conversation. How do we meet with all our great ideas and actually do something? You don't have to know it today, but here we've talked about it all and we know what are the threats and we know what needs to be done. We don't know, but why don't we build a container where we actually sit there together and we say, actually, let's do something. There's enough people talking about it. How about doing something? And so, yes, I have seven girls. You're doing this and I have a place. I have many communities working with me and we should do something. Let's think about it. Let's think and about we it. should Amazing. all do something. <laughs> Rebecca, for us to have a better food future, what, what do you think are the key things that need to be addressed? And I was interested in when you talked about, you know, more people living alone, an ageing population in a country like Australia. I mean, mm. how, how do you address some of those social issues? And what do you think are the key ones that need to be addressed? Well, there's a lot to be done, and I think that education of kids is important. I suppose in the work that I do as a social researcher, I do a lot of stuff with government and corporations. And one of the things I'd like to see is for them to consider food security and food issues in every decision they make. Because how we plan our cities, how we build our homes, how we structure our curriculum at schools, um, everything has an impact on the ability of us to eat well or not. Health policy. Um, yeah, everything. Mm. I just think that... But particularly how we build our communities and cities. And we can't just be in a situation where we think we're just going to build more and more apartment blocks and then shove a supermarket in there. It doesn't matter if, oh, well, their idea of diversity is we'll put an Aldi next to the Coles. That's not <laughs> how we need to go. So I think that, that integrating an issue of how are people going to eat well and how will every single decision maximise or diminish their ability to cook and cook well um, has to be integrated throughout policy decision making. Mm. A better food future? David, what do you think are the, the key things that need to happen for a better food future? I mean, I always try to think from a cook's perspective or a chef's perspective, and I think that uh, it's this issue of solidarity, um, not just here, but all over the world. Uh, this is sort of this, this fraternity of sorts, and I think that the more we can hold each other accountable, uh, myself included, I think that... Uh, that future will be a stronger future. Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important to call bullshit on each other. And I don't know if we do it enough. I know I can do it with these guys, and I'm really blessed to have that. Um, but I see a lot of people that are younger that come and ask questions, and I'm like, man, you have the question. You already know the answer. You're just afraid to call bullshit on your friend over there or your own kitchen crew or myself. And 
I think that's, that, is a, that gets lost in the concept of solidarity. It's calling each other out to hold each other to a higher standard. And uh, when we do that, I think everything else takes care of itself. Thank you all so much for joining us for the whole day today. And thank you all as well very much for being part of today. It's been a really uh, fascinating series of talks and discussions. I know the discussion will keep going. Um, social media is a great place to have it. So, uh, you know, get out there and start talking about some of the issues that have been raised. Would you please thank everyone? <laughs> <laughs>